Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is Martin Luther's famous, nay, notorious treatise, The Bondage of the Will, from 1525, because we like to do easy topics. Isn't that right, Dad? Right. Yes. Um, we're, we're in bondage to sin, and we cannot free ourselves. <laughs> as our uh, confession of sin in the LBW has us say, right. So um, I have a, a kind of long and, and rich history with this text. Um, I remember, Dad, that I read it in college. It may have been part of my probably dreadful senior thesis. I'm not sure. But I remember I was reading it and I sent you an email because email was new and you were far away. And I said, I remember, Dad, I'm reading The Bondage of the Will and it's really disturbing me. <laughs> And you wrote back, good, it should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's right. I mean, Luther Luther wrote this book like, like he was, you know, running a flamethrower, trying to scorch everything <laughs> in his path and, and really provoke people into getting to the heart of the matter. Yeah. But then I read it again in seminary, my first or second year, and it was something akin to having a conversion experience. This time I got what Luther was getting at. And uh, I ended up, uh, I had a, a classmate who also had a, a strong positive reaction to it. We ended up even writing an article about it that was published in Christianity Today. But um, it's it's very funny that the same thing the first time could just be alarming and the second time could be like release into freedom, which I think is more what Luther was actually hoping for out of the treatise. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I, I must have read it for the first time when I was in seminary. Uh, and I was electrified by it. Uh, of course, in those days, coming out of the 1960s and going through the trauma of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod's breakup uh, over Seminex, um, we were looking for theology that could be, well, to use the abused word, radical. Go to the root. And uh, boy, this sure seemed like uh, a probing deconstruction of the vaunted uh, free will, which um, Americans in particular pride themselves upon, and just a roasting of the whole range of ideas surrounding uh, free will, a much more realistic look at human nature uh, and the human predicament uh, was offered by this text. But of course, I have to admit at the same time, the answers that Luther provides to this unveiling of human bondage, liberation by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, exclusively liberation by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, probably scared um, even the most diehard 60s radicals away from it. <laughs> Well, I think, I mean, we'll have our takeaways at the end, but I think just a heads up is you, you, the whole point here is you can't programmatize this. You actually cannot build an ecclesiastical model upon it, which is probably why there never has been, including the Lutheran Church, one built on this model, because uh, it's as well as the Augsburg Confession correctly says, it's when and where the spirit pleases. So by definition, you can't make any of this happen. Uh, maybe you can tilt more in the direction of, of truthful speech and authentic church, but you sure can't 
um, guarantee anything like what this is about, because that's kind of the point, that God is God and we are not. The spirit blows where he will. <laughs> that's right. You know, that's it's ubi et quando deo, deo visum est, where and when it pleases God. The Augsburg Confession, yep. Yep, boy, you sure can't build a slogan or a campaign or a team on that. So <laughs> anyway, well, let's get down to the uh, the historical uh, circumstances of the composition to begin with. Why don't you sketch those out for us, Dad? Well, very simply, um, uh, early on in the Reformation, Luther saw himself indebted to Erasmus for his humanistic uh, uh, in the Renaissance sense of the word humanism, his humanistic program of going back to the ancient sources in the original language to overcome the scholastic method of cherry-picking texts out of context and treating them as dogmatic assertions of truth. And of course, when you do this, you get a bundle of contradictory statements out of the ancient authorities. And then you line up these contradictory statements, and in the scholastic method, you try logically to reconcile them. And this, of course, already has, from in the very first move, have, has turned scripture into a hash, and then put its text at the mercy of scholastic um, uh, um, disputational procedures. And Erasmus was saying, no, no, no. You have to go back to these ancient texts in the original languages and read them rhetorically to understand what they are trying to communicate in their own context. And of course, Luther was an enormous beneficiary of this humanistic method, uh, this reformatory method of reading the Bible. So he felt himself deeply indebted to Erasmus, who of course had also produced the new edition uh, the recent critical edition of the Greek uh, Greek New Testament, which Luther then labored to master, um, and up until up until the early 1520s, they saw themselves as allied in the cause of the reform of church and society, but Erasmus became increasingly distressed with what he thought was Luther's necessitarianism, that Luther was teaching the absolute um, necessity of all things according to the will of God. And, of course, if that's true, that undercuts the moral responsibility of human beings. Uh, so it seemed to Erasmus, and this really deeply concerned him. So in, I think, 1524, Erasmus published a, a, a lengthy text on the freedom of the will, and basically, the argument is, just as you would expect of Erasmus, rather moderate. He simply says, Scripture has many passages in which it asserts or assumes the freedom of the human will, and other passages in which it assumes divine sovereignty over ruling human will. And so Scripture is contradictory, and we can't make a dogma out of it. So let everyone read Scripture as it suits him or her, her. When Luther read that, he was furious. <laughs> <laughs> to say the least. Uh, both because he thought Erasmus had a very shallow understanding of the issues of divine sovereignty and human freedom, 
and also because he thought that his approach to scripture rendered it theologically useless. Uh, it's sort of like the ELCA 10 years ago said, well, everybody can make up their own mind about human sexuality, <laughs> and everybody is bound to their own conscience on the matter, a totally incoherent position that a church cannot possibly sustain. And as a result, we see uh, that very shortly, not only will the so-called bound choice, uh, bound conscience decision of t uh, 2009 probably be rescinded, but the ELCA is probably going to be totally reorganized uh, because it's so uh, incoherent now and it's in such decline. Mm -hmm. And in the end, it's always one view that wins, not a diversity of views that win, despite the, uh, well, yeah, that, the uh, praise of the, diversity. Right, yes, it, it, yes. And when it comes to human sexuality, it seems anything goes nowadays, but and let's, not, let's not get off track. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I think I, I, I want to say about Erasmus that um, any reasonable person who's leading a functional life and wants other people to lead, you know, basically competent functional lives will think, well, of course, Erasmus is right. Of course, people are responsible for their own lives. And, you know, if you tell them they do everything because they have to, because, you know, it's been determined from time out of mind, God's some sort of puppet master. Or even if you tell them where religion is concerned that, you know, they can't do anything, um, you know, not even get themselves ready for God to come into their lives, well, you're just going to have a big civilizational mess on your hands. And on that plane of reality, of course, Erasmus is right. Right. <laughs> and I, I think we have to grant them that he's he's not like, he's not a lightweight in that respect. He actually was a serious reformer. He saw all the problems in the church. He was very concerned about people's lax morals and, and lazy thinking and, you know, not not making the best of what had been given to them. Fair enough, right? <laughs> Except... The, I guess one of the, the many deep questions of this treatise is, is that in fact the human condition? And does that solution really get to the, the heart of uh, what is going on with the human race? Well, you know, right now in the United States, we have a rather major um, uh, controversy about the nature of criminal law. And you could actually say that it parses these this set of disputes. Um, if, if human beings have been so degraded and uh, and degraded by their uh, poverty and oppression that they act out badly. What kind of criminal justice system is it that that uh, uh, punishes the, these people only to make their situation in life worse? So the the very idea that only those who are morally responsible for their crimes should be punished. Can be um, can die the death of a thousand qualifications once you start picking away the layers of conditions that have produced the criminal behavior in the individual. I don't want to get further into that. I just want to say this: we're still de debating these kinds of issues um, uh, today uh, in secular form. But well, and I think this is the right, exactly the right realm to have those kind of conversations because yeah, on, on the horizontal plane, which Luther makes very clear as he goes along, that, that is a different set of issues that we address. And, you know, I think you and I would both say uh, Americans or Westerners have way too much confidence in how much freedom we have over our own lives and desires, even on the horizontal plane. And considering America is the land of advertising, we ought to know better than to think that we're <laughs> totally free on these matters. 
others, but that that is not what Luther is after here. And it's the confusion of the horizontal and the vertical, let's say, the, the human plane and the human divine interaction that makes him so angry at Erasmus. Absolutely. And he is therefore in the, this treatise on De Servo Arbitrio, on captivated choice or something like that, we should translate. Uh, Luther makes it clear that he distinguishes between the things that are above us, namely the relationship to God, and the things that are below us, namely the things that are within human dominion, according to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Um, but here comes, Sarah, here comes a difficulty, which arose in the immediate aftermath of Luther making this distinction. As I just explained, he says to Erasmus, I'm only talking about the things above us, not at all about the things below us. Well, Holdrus Zwingli read that and said, phony distinction, absolutely phony distinction, because you cannot account for uh, the divine spirit's works of election, predestination, election, uh, a bestowal of faith, uh, a gathering to the community without a discussion of the things below us. All the so-called secondary causes in the universe have to be uh, uh, puppeteered in order to produce election and renewal and faith and regeneration and all these other things. So Luther, your attempt to distinguish the things above us from the things below us is fraudulent. Metaphysics requires us to have a system of causality which is ironclad, from which there are no exceptions. And if God is sovereign, then all things are happen by necessity, as you try half-heartedly to affirm, but you fail to do that with your exemption of the things below us. Mm. Well, this is a pretty ancient philosophical argument, isn't it? <laughs> oh, yes, it's an ancient philosophical argument. But I think one of our authors that we'll discuss a little bit later, Mika Ruakan, has an ingenious uh, uh, solution to the dilemma that I just um, that I just laid out. But I just want to point out right from the beginning, Luther was understood on the one side as being a necessitarian. Erasmus understood him as a necessitarian, and on the other side, Zwingli's side. Luther was accused of being a half-hearted necessitarian. <laughs> so something's gone wrong here. Yeah. Well, then, and that also leads to some of the terminological questions, too, about the distinction between will and choice. Um, why don't you also walk us through those distinctions, and then we'll actually get into the treatise. Right. Yeah, I, well, you know, we have this English term free will, and we use it, uh, not to put too fine a point on it, with utter promiscuity. <laughs> it, it, it can mean anything anybody thinks uh, free will. Uh, there, it suffers severely from the fallacy of equivocation. Uh, well said. And, and Luther does not actually, there's no term in the, in the Latin text of this treatise that should be translated freedom, free will or freedom of the will. What he's talking about are three Latin terms. He uses three Latin terms. Voluntas, which is basically willingness. Um, if I do what I do willingly, without coercion, that's voluntas. 
Luther affirms freedom of the will, but it's a tautology. If you will something willingly, you will it freely. You're not under coercion. So in that sense, when Luther affirms that we have a will and that we do what we do willingly, uh, he affirms uh, tautologically that that is a free will. Um, He distinguishes that, though, from arbitrium, which comes in uh, uh, arbitrium, which is basically the word for a choice. So let's say willingly, I want ice cream for dessert tonight, but I have a choice between chocolate and strawberry flavored ice cream. Okay, so I, I, I will, I'm willingly eating ice cream, but I have a free choice between flavors. But let's say, in addition, that I'm willing to eat have ice cream for dessert, and I choose to have chocolate ice cream, but I'm bound in my wheelchair and I can't get up to the refrigerator to dish myself some ice cream. And so I do not have the power to enact my choice on what I willingly desire. So you have three different ideas of free of will here. Willingness, choice, and power. Um, and Luther, in his passion, often jumbles up these various usages, and Erasmus doesn't help him get any clarity on it either. Okay, well, <laughs> so then that raises, I think, the uh, sort of a, a choice, one might even say, that you and I have to make at the outset of this treatise, because it is very long and very rich, and let's also say absolutely relentless. By the end of rereading it uh, this time around, I was like, okay, Luther, I get it. But it's probably because I'd gotten it before. Um, but it, obviously, it took me at least two times through it before to, to get what he was saying. So this treatise is dealing with a lot of different things. So one of them is about the nature of human will and willingness and choosing and ability to enact that choice. There's also the question of God's will and willingness and choice and ability to enact that choice. It's also about whether God is responsible for evil. That would kind of be um, at the back of Zwingli's uh, thing saying that everything is determined and that separating out primary and secondary causes is false. Um, it could be, uh, we could also focus on the human contribution to salvation, if any, or human ethical possibilities. But we could also say this is a treatise about the clarity of scripture. And finally, we could say this is actually a treatise about God, the Holy Spirit. Of course, it is all those things. I don't think we can do justice to all of them. So where do you think we should focus our energies for this particular podcast? Well, I, I have to go back to my career as a teacher of this text because I often assigned it in when I taught the theology of Martin Luther, uh, even though other college-level professors were scandalized that I would assign such a text. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have to admit, of course, students would start reading it and they would be baffled. Uh, what is this? What's going on here? Like you were the first time you read it. And so I used to play this little game after a couple of weeks with the text. I would challenge the students now, just open any page in the text blindly. I don't care what page you open to, just open to any page at all. Now take your red letter pen and go through the two pages that you're looking at and circle every occurrence of the Holy Spirit. 
circle every occurrence. And inevitably, that exercise was telling. The title of the book is De Servo Arbitrio, on captive choice, but could just as easily have been De Spiritu Sanctu, concerning the Holy Spirit. Because what Luther is really arguing at for here, well, in my opinion, is the liberating presence and power of the Holy Spirit as integral to the Christian message of salvation and indeed as integral to the message of justification by faith. And I have to say that later Lutheranism really squandered this insight, but it's there in the text. It, this is really a treatise. The um, first bold assertion of the entire treatise is, the Holy Spirit is no skeptic. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> because he's criticizing Erasmus for disabling the uh, authority of, of Scripture um, with his, well, one passage says this, but another passage says that. Who can decide, right? And, of course, Luther's counter-thrust is the author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit, is not a skeptic like you, Erasmus. Right. So at, at core, one of the cores of this thing then is of this treatise is about who is who enacts and is responsible for salvation. And as mentioned before, Erasmus is very panicked about the prospect of people not feeling some measure of responsibility for that, their salvation. Um, so one of the things Luther is doing is is trying to get some clarity on where we're talking about, because it's, it's helpful to know that what Luther is talking about is before God comes into your life. Um, and this is kind of the one of the deeper medieval questions, too, which it, which is, when you think about it, kind of funny since they were operating in a world of basically universal infant baptism and church involvement of, of some level. <laughs> but the, the question is really about whether or not you can in any way anticipate, do anything, prepare yourself for the reception of grace. Um, well, you know, where does the responsibility lie for you? Something that you will do that God will then meet you and fill up all that you are lacking. And it might be incredibly generous on God's part. God might supply the 99.5% that you were lacking, but it would be, the question is, it's in response to what, what is it that I, the, the estranged sinner have to do to be worthy for God to come or God to be willing to come and fix what's wrong with my life. So that, that is the specific question. Actually, I was, I was surprised to discover reading through it again, that once, once the Holy Spirit is operative in your life, Luther relaxes quite a bit about the word cooperation <laughs> or, you know, what, what you do willingly um, and knowingly with God. Um, I, I think that people jump to that way too fast and uh, uh, greatly overestimate <laughs> the the level of cooperation between even the uh, uh, justified human person and and the spirit. But actually, Luther, that is not where his concern is. His concern is really strictly this question of human beings apart from God doing something to bring God graciously upon them. Yeah, but Sarah, again, let me just point out how 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 common this thought is in contemporary, secularized Western culture. God helps those who help themselves. 
you do your part and God will do his part, right? Uh, from the beginning of the Reformation, Luther was attacking this doctrine, facere quod in se, do what is in you and God will do the rest, facere quod in se. And so he is absolutely determined to um, crush this human arrogance about its own powers. Uh, he writes in the treatise, no one can thir be thoroughly humbled unless he knows that his salvation is utterly beyond his own powers, devices, endeavors, will, and works, and depends entirely on the choice, will, and work of another, namely of God alone. For as long as one is persuaded that he himself can do even the least thing towards his salvation, facere quote and say, do your part and God does the rest, um, uh, that person retains some self-confidence and does not altogether despair of himself, and therefore he is not humbled before God, but presumes that there is, or at least hopes or desires, that there may be some place, time, and work for him by which he may at length attain to salvation. But Dad, I would say this isn't just modern, Western, secularized religion. This is human religion. Yeah. This is what humans everywhere and on all times in the pure Catholicity of human religion <laughs> always want to know what they can do and uh, what they are responsible for and how they can contribute and not let God be God because that is too absolutely terrifying. And the again, the civilizational consequences of proclaiming this are alarming, And but specifically for Christians, and maybe especially now we can get back to modern American Christians, or at least historic American Christians, all evangelistic campaigns that are premised on, on uh, talking people into um, becoming Christians or terrifying people into becoming Christians fall apart if it is not laid at their doorstep, make your decision now for Christ or else. Right, yeah. And I, I would further say what I, I really got this time out of out of the treatise, and this goes back to it being fundamentally a treatise about God, the Holy Spirit, is that um, Luther makes the doctrinal argument for the spirit in justification. But even more fundamentally than that, to be justified, you need the Holy Spirit. It's not just having a correct doctrine of the spirit, but actually having the spirit that is um, at stake here. And again, that, uh, of course, Luther is always going to stay, say that the spirit comes through means like the word and the sacraments and the community and the preaching and all that kind of thing, but that it really is the spirit's doing. And so, yes, of course, it, it will help us to grasp what's going on to correct our doctrine of justification to be spirit-centered, but actually it still doesn't that even a correct doctrine of the spirit does not force the Holy Spirit to come. The Holy Spirit comes, as we said, when and where it pleases. Yes, but I, I think, Sarah, there is one thing we can say about this. When preachers fail to preach the gift of the Holy Spirit, rather than simply the cliche, faith is a gift of the spirit, but actually to preach the spirit as the particular and special gift that the risen Christ sends upon his people. And to lay that out as exactly the same spirit that had um, Jesus conceived in the womb of his mother Mary and fell upon him in his baptism and drove him into conflict with the devils and um, strengthened him uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane 
to undergo the passion that he had to undergo, and then on the third day raised him from the dead. All of this empowering and enabling Jesus Christ to be the Christ that he was, so that the risen Christ could with justice and by right send that very same spirit upon um, his people. Um, and I, I think that not only have has the Protestant tradition in general and Lutherans as well retreated from the radicalness of this treatise of Luther, They've also retreated from Luther's vigorous proclamation of the Holy Spirit that we find in this treatise. And so the, the Spirit can't work with apart from the Word. And so if the Spirit is going to work, you've got to proclaim the Spirit. You've, you've got to, right? <laughs> As the right, great right. gift of Christ himself. Yes, I, I absolutely agree that the, the spirit is also part of the content of, of the preaching and the, the care of souls and all of that, for sure. But also, it, uh, you know, uh, for me, what's so, so um, electrifying and alarming about this treatise is that, yes, that is all true, and it still is up to the spirit. And the consequences of that are... are um, immense and they're liberating but they're also terrifying so yes by all means preachers preach the content of the of the biblical witness about the spirit and talk about the spirit but it's still the, the spirit's doing i guess that's um just what i wanted to say but here i think we, we can make a connection here as we're zigzagging our way through this to uh ruo Kanan's book that we both admired so enormously because um i i, I you know a lot more about the 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 long doctrinal history of Lutheranism in the uh, between uh, Luther and Bonhoeffer, <laughs> which is where the story often picks up for many of us. But um, one thing that I was really struck that Ru O'Connor pointed out is how Lutherans, as an institutional doctrinal system, retreated from the Spirit and really put their emphasis on the Word. And that uh, even in in the early twentieth century, that kind of really got to its high point in the charismatic movement, so forth. But to the to the extent that it was was it was all word centered like uh, proclaim not just Christ but the the content of the thing and um, but apart from any understanding or insistence that it is the spirit that um, animates the word and brings about faith in the word as a result I found that to be a very helpful critique and I may have told this anecdote on this podcast before forgive me if I'm repeating it. But I remember in uh, one of my graduate school seminars one time, uh, just that sort of popped out of me saying, I think that justification by faith is actually a third article doctrine, not a second article doctrine. And um, everyone's staring at me in, in bewilderment. It's like, what's that supposed to mean? And I was like, I don't know, but I think it's right. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably some some bondage of the will. But I think there, there actually is a... a um, uh, Ruo Kanan has really laid his finger on, on the issue here and what I was inchoately grasping at, which is that there is a way that Lutheran uh, uh, doctrinal history has mega focused on the second article about Christ and his death and resurrection. I guess we'd be lucky if his resurrection was that important. It's often just his death. And um, and that itself is like the saving act and the saving content. Um, and so you're just supposed to hear it and, it and it does the thing to you and you're supposed to respond to that. But um, 
the the Holy Spirit actually being the one that that actually justification is the work of the Spirit and you know in a technical sense not the work of Christ's Christ's work is his life death and resurrection and that the Spirit's work is creating faith on account of hearing that message that kind of um, an essential partnership between word and spirit seems to have been lost and Ruo Kanan did a very nice job of of um, critiquing that and and showing the 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 inherent weakness in a word only um, approach of, to justification. Yeah, I think that's right, Sarah. Uh, Ruo Kanan, will, I'm sure his name will come up several times in this podcast, but just on what you just said to what you just said there, I think in the past in our podcast on justification, we've made the point that the 16th century doctrine is justification by faith, by faith alone. It's not the modern truncation of that justification by grace. Right. If, and that would be the second article, hyper-concentration on Christ alone and grace alone, right, without any concept of, of how this Christ alone and grace alone actually gets concretely communicated or mediated so as to create, and I would use the divine word verb to create, to create the hearts and minds open to and willing to receive uh, the grace of God uh, manifest in the cross and resurrection of Christ. Yeah, that's like the terrible irony is that I, I think it's kind of like a, a Lutheran overreaction to American religiosity that makes salvation your job and therefore faith your work. And instead of attacking the root issue like Luther does in the bondage of the will, we ended up attacking faith, which is exactly Luther's whole point is that it is actually faith by which we are justified. And yes, faith is something that happens inside of a person, but we've given away faith as being a human work instead of doing what Luther does, which reclaiming faith as the creation of the Holy Spirit through the word and the sacrament and the ministry of the church and all that. That's very great, Sarah. And I just, that connects back to something else you said a moment ago, that reading about this, that we are literally at the mercy of the Spirit. That's, I mean, that's how you can summarize Luther's treatise. We are at the mercy of the Spirit. It's not in our power. It's in the power and willingness of the Spirit to bestow and grant us faith. We are at the mercy of the Spirit. And you said that's terrifying, if I understood you correctly. But let's point this out. For Luther, this terror is the beginning of salvation. And that's another thing that Ruo Kanan brings out brilliantly, that the, um, as a, we, I was quoting Luther earlier, I can continue. When a person has no doubt that everything depends on the will of God, then he completely despairs of himself and chooses nothing for himself, but waits for God to work. Then he has come close to grace and can be saved. That's exactly the terrifying point. And Ruo Kanan even ups the ante on this. He says, only the person who worries about damnation is the object of salvation. Isn't that, isn't that <laughs> yeah. a wild thought? And that's, you know, you think about it, that's actually true. Who worries about the possibility of being rejected or being lost to God? Who worries about that? Right. Only the person who knows that they can't save themselves. Exactly. And that's, that's when you're close to grace. When grace is grace for the ungodly. 
Exactly. Exactly. Great. Well, yeah, great. <laughs> it's easy once you're on the other side of it. It's really hard to get there, though. So and uh, well, and like, you know, I obviously was raised in a, a deeply Lutheran immersive environment. And even so, my first tangle with the bondage of the will left me rather panicked, but not in a in a fruitful, graceful, grace filled kind of way. So so then for Luther, then I, I think people, uh, again, it's not surprisingly over fixate on Luther's assertions about the human will in this treatise. And again, the, the title would lead you to believe that. But for him, it's the, the corollary or the implication of salvation being entirely the work of the sovereign God and the sovereign spirit, especially, that therefore implies that humans have no freedom and no proper willingness toward God, toward salvation, towards having their their sins removed from them in advance of the Spirit's invasion of their lives. And it's in this context uh, that Luther's very, um, he invokes the apocalyptic language and Jesus' parable about a stronger, a stronger man coming to invade the house. Uh, so this is where Luther invokes his famous um, metaphor. Thus, the human will is placed between the two, that means God and Satan, like a beast of burden. If God rides it, it wills and goes where God wills. If Satan rides it, it wills and goes where Satan wills. Nor can it choose to run to either of the two riders, but the riders themselves contend for possession and control of it. And therefore, Luther draws the conclusion, hence it follows that free choice without the grace of God is not free at all. Um, this is deeply, deeply offensive to human dignity, isn't it? Well, yes, of course, it's deeply offensive to the human complacency that thinks that our participation in the stru structures of malice and injustice which predominate in our world is a piece of cake with God and that God is not a problem for us uh, as we merrily go along with the deep and endemic sinfulness and injustice and corruption that is permeates uh, our entire being in the world. And if that sounds like a dire and radical analysis of the human condition, so be it. Uh, uh, it's, a, if it's an affront not to our dignity, I would say, but to our complacency. Though, again, I think, as I, I said earlier, I think, um, actually, ironically, the problem with uh, religious people who are, who are, are, you know, immersively somehow in, in the Christian world is that they've immediately skipped onward to where Luther does talk. I mean, not with reference to Luther, but in their own minds, they're already in the place of being cozy allies with the Holy Spirit and cooperating with the spirits. Um, I'm sure you and I have both heard people recklessly invoke the Holy Spirit to defend whatever it is that they're up to. Um, and, you know, all they need is, is a divine blessing and off they go. Um, and so I, I think one of the, the um, challenges in, uh, again, you cannot programmatize this treatise, but bringing it to bear is, you know, so often the people that we're talking to are people who are baptized and communing and worshiping on a regular basis, and yet somehow have not um, wrestled with this um, you know, radical prevenience and sovereignty of the grace and operation of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Makes me think of Robert Jensen's comment in his systematic theology that those most in need of catechesis are those who think they're upstanding members of the church. <laughs> but I want to I want I want to really pick up on the point of apocalyptic here, Sarah, because that 
puts some of these sharp remarks into a better context, I think. It is a great conflict between good and evil. It's a conflict between good and evil that is over our heads, for which we are the prize for which these two opposing forces are battling. And that's why in the treatise, it's the hardening of the slave master Pharaoh's heart, which is the chief scriptural illustration of this. Sure, Pharaoh thinks he's a good religious man, and he's on top of an empire blessed by the gods. It just so happens that his privilege consists in his grinding down the Hebrew slaves. And so when Moses shows up with the message from the Lord, let my people go, Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should let the people go, right? So he is convinced of his own wisdom, his own righteousness, his own authority, and so forth and so on, and can't even imagine that his privileged position on the top of the human pyramid uh, is the <laughs> literally built, in Pharaoh's case, <laughs> literally in Pharaoh's case is literally built upon the bones uh, of, of oppressed slaves. It's a slave system. And so when Luther argues that God hardens Pharaoh's heart and does not show him mercy, what he's saying is no different, Sarah, than what Paul Tillich uh, broadcast to the resistance in Nazi Germany during World War II when he said that the wrath and justice of God are coming down on the Nazi regime for its manifold sins, and there is no escaping from this judgment. And in fact, there is no repentance possible for the Nazis because they are hardened in their hearts and they will take the whole country down with them before they will repent. And I also would say, is it much different from Martin Luther King comparing the contemporary West to the rich young ruler who went away sad from Jesus because his wealth was too great to be sacrificed for the cause of greater mercy and justice in the world. So I think that this is the level at which the apocalyptic conflict between the Regnum Diaboli, the kingdom of the devil, and the Regnum Christi, the kingdom of Christ, that's the level at which we have to understand Luther's rhetoric. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's what is so deeply upsetting, because in an apocalyptic situation, as, as any fan of uh, apocalyptic uh, horror movies or dystopian movies knows, um, you're, you're out of luck. <laughs> There's nothing left that you can do. You cannot programmatize. Civilization is falling apart, blah, 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 blah. So, um, yeah, that this is this is a very uncomfortable message to, to preach, especially doing during um, stewardship season at church. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Well, we want the wallets to open up, right? Yeah, but but so I mean, but what's interesting, I think, uh, we that that takes us immediately to the question of whether God God is good, uh, which is what Luther takes up in, in part three, which we'll sort of shift over into now. Just by the by, for listeners out there, part two of this treatise is uh, Erasmus saying, "How could the Church have gotten stuff so wrong for so long?" And uh, that is a very interesting question, but that's not one we're going to take up here. So in, in part three, Luther starts with um, the question of.
of, you know, w- uh, lost liberty is no liberty at all. And you can say that humans have free choice, except that it's not very free, at which point, like, what's the point of calling it free choice anymore? So he's he's really pushing this issue of, of what we, all the things that we cannot do, all the dodges we use with our language and claiming that we have has have some, some freedom or ability to choose or to reform ourselves or no, no, I'll get better. No, really, I, I, I'll sell most of what I own, just not all of what I own, or all these compromises we make with God. But interestingly, again, for Luther, these assertions about the human will always have... Um, they are their implications from a prior theological point, which for him is that if the human will or desire or choice can save itself, then there is no need for Christ. Um, you uh, people probably know that the famous th- uh, saying of Luther is what drives Christ. That's kind of a, a testing case for preaching is, is Jesus necessary for any of these assertions or, or um, sermonizings to hold up? And if not, then you have preached the wrong thing. So again, there's, there's this theological center. But then Erasmus's objection is, okay, you take away all human choice. You say it's entirely up to God because God is sovereign. Okay, well, what about the fact that evidently people are not saved? Lots of people are not saved. Maybe most people are not saved. If you're saying they have done nothing to earn their damnation because that's just the situation they find themselves in because they're lost sinners and there's nothing they can do to earn their salvation, then basically, Luther, you are saying that God arbitrarily consigns people to damnation. And so another kind of central focus of this thesis of this treatise is really the dispute between Luther and Erasmus about whether God is good. Right. Yeah, and here again, I mean, uh, we're invoking the name of Rural Conan again and again, but I think his solution to this question is quite telling. Um, and it depends on an insight that what motivates Erasmus, by the way, you had mentioned, let me just make a quick digression. You had mentioned that the treatise title on captive choice uh, makes us think that this is an anthropological treatise. Um, but I think it's really simply a polemical reflection of, of Erasmus's title, which came first, which was on the freedom of the will. So Erasmus attacks Luther under the title freedom of the will. Luther replies on the captivity of, of choice, right? So the, the, that's, he's entangled in Erasmus's basically anthropological uh, orientation here, as you're saying, and his concern about human morality and society and so forth. Now, back to the point, um, which was what? <laughs> <laughs> is whether God is good. Whether God is good. This is what Rule Conan brings out, I think, very, very nicely, that what motivates um, Erasmus is the free will defense of God. Namely, God created, this is, we hear this all the time. This is so shallow. We, God created us with free will. Therefore, we are at fault for sin, not God. Uh, we're the ones who do the sins, not God, because we have free will. And that's a, Erasmus's theodicy. That's how Erasmus rationally wants to justify God. And of course, that justification of God only works in turn, if God is basically fair according to human rules, namely that if we do our part, God will do his part. 
Martin Luther attacks this whole complex of ideas. And he provocatively argues that God is not fair according to our uh, rules. God is righteous, but it's a righteousness that is God's and not human beings. And it can't be calculated, as you were saying earlier, or turned into a principle or a system that we can easily deploy in our own defense when God criticizes us or what can be used, on the other hand, to justify God when terrible atrocities occur in his creation. This is also where Luther brings in very strongly his distinction between law and gospel. I'd forgotten how much this is also a treatise on the distinction between law and gospel, because part of the way that Erasmus makes his case is he says, well, look, the scripture is full of commands and laws along these lines. And logically, we would not be commanded to do things unless we had the power to do them. So for Erasmus, a command logically implies the power to keep keep that command. And Luther completely disputes this. And and this is where I think the bondage of the will is also a fascinating treatise on scriptural hermeneutics and basic choices you make when you come to the text and understanding what it's trying to do. Luther says, no, all a command does is tell you what you should do. There is absolutely no implication there that you are capable of doing it. And in fact, perhaps we can say one of the purposes of commands that you discover you do not have the power to keep is precisely for you to make that discovery. So instead of being a simplistic, do this, okay, I'll do it, now I'm good, um, the, the purpose of a biblical command is to force you spiritually into the position, uh, like from that quote you read earlier, of discovering, I have no power to do what I want to do. I'm having a hard time even choosing what would be the better thing to do if I even had the power to enact it. And maybe, most disturbingly in all, I discover I don't actually want the things that God wants. Now what? So for Luther, that's one of the very important aspects of of the preaching of the law and actually why we should continue to preach the law, because it is necessary to have that shattering of the vanity of human delusions of, of, of uh, you know, uh, willing the right thing and choosing the right thing and having the power to enact that desire and that choice. But then, of course, for Luther, equally important is that the scripture is replete with grace and promises as well. And those are their response to the situation the human finds herself in. And this has been codified in Lutheran thinking as the um, second use of the law or the theological use of the law, that which uh, drives the conscience to Christ. But I always feel the need to remind, especially modern Lutherans, that the second use of the law does not work unless the law is actually good in what it commands. If it's just arbitrary or wicked, uh, such that you actually want to set people free from the law's content entirely, then you really are in the realm of an arbitrary and probably sadistic God. The only reason that the inability to keep the law is a problem is because the law is actually a good thing, meant for human flourishing. The law is summarized in the double love commandment. So uh, if you want to call that an evil law, go right ahead. But that's the heart (laughs) of the law. Um, And it appears in Leviticus. Jesus didn't make it up. (laughs) Right, exactly. Now, uh, just let's comment uh, briefly on what you said. The logic that ought implies can, ought implies can. The command implies the ability to fulfill the command. This is Erasmus's argument, right? And you rightly pointed out for Luther, no, the command 
his purpose, divine spiritual purpose, the spiritual use of the law, the second use of the law, is to reveal our impotence, to humble us and reveal our impotence. Now, one of the reasons why modern Lutheranism is so screwed up on these issues is because in his ethical philosophy, Immanuel Kant quite consciously takes the side of Erasmus and explicitly affirms that the moral law implies the ability to keep it. I don't know if he was quoting Erasmus directly or literally, but verbatim he repeats the thought. And so, from the time of the turn of the 19th century, um, uh, from that point on, Lutheranism was dealing with Kantian moral philosophy as if it were its own genuine thinking about the ethical life. And therefore, Luther's meaning was even more utterly obscure to it. Yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> again, there there is a fundamental problem of uh, encoding or programmatizing this. So, um, and and I could it it makes sense in, in, in the Enlightenment context to talk this in this radical and apocalyptic way does not serve any of the uh, nation or science building projects that the 18th and 19th centuries were very concerned with. Um, well, we saw where those ended up because we've both lived in the 20th century. <laughs> well, okay. So anyway, the, then the, the point that then that we have to get to then is if, if, if all of this obtains, then we still come back to the question is, is God good in God's apparent damnation of lots of people who um, couldn't do anything to save themselves and then God, you know, saves some people who also couldn't do anything to save themselves. And that's where we start to um, look in the direction, peer into the dark heart of double predestination, which other reformers um, embraced more openly. But Luther has a quite different approach to this problem. And um, I think this is quite interesting because, um, well, I, I just... There, there, there's a really cheap way to invoke um, don't go there or it's a mystery. And often when I hear that, it's it's a, a cover up for lazy thinking. But I think when Luther is doing it here, he actually is um, properly recognizing and respecting the limits of what human minds have not only can know, but have been given to know by the witness of of, you know, Israel and the apostles and Jesus and the scripture and everything and says, no, this, this is a real limit and nothing good can come of progressing any farther down that road. Yeah. Another scholar who's written on this treatise, Andrea Vestrucci, uh, makes a, I think a pretty significant point about this, that the concept of the hiddenness of God, which is what we're really talking about here, the uh, Deus Obsquenditus, the God who cannot be um, um, mastered but only only worshipped and adored, um, the Deus Obsquenditus, uh, serves to block unlimited theological conceptualization or the drawing of unlimited inferences. It's just there as a, a surd, as it were, that keeps us from from uh, drawing confident conclusions based on what little we are given to fully understand. Um, and I think that raises then the whole issue of what is this apparent dualism of Luther between the hidden God, Deus Obsconditus, and the revealed God, Deus Revelatus. What do you think about that? 
Well, what Luther says is, uh, by definition, we cannot know the hidden God, or he also calls it God and his majesty. He says, we know it's there, we, we reverently adore it, and we keep our distance, but that is because God has said, I want you to deal with me through my word. And that is the word, the, the promises given to Abraham and his children forever, the promise given in Jesus Christ and in the outpouring of the Spirit. God says, that is how you are to deal with me. Do not look at the man behind the curtain. <laughs> Except it's not a fraud in this case, like it was in the Wizard of Oz. But um, it is simply we are we are not invited to go there. But but for Luther, it also means that the God who has sent His Son to die on the cross for us that that is just as much and just as fully and truly God. So I think what we're dealing with here is not like a, a metaphysical or ontological split in God, but something more like an epistemological split for our sake. Um, I think it's some Luther conceptualizes it more along the line of when uh, God reveals himself to Moses on Mount Sinai. He says, you cannot look upon my face, but you can see my hindquarters. And um, that is not meant as um, like there's a difference between God's front and back, but it is actually a merciful act towards Moses, sparing him something that he could not encounter and survive. Yeah, very good, Sarah. And so that what that means uh, then is that the concept of the hidden God and the revealed God arise, as it were, simultaneously. Uh, it's precisely God in his revealedness who uh, makes us cognizant in that sense of terror that you talked about earlier of what remains hidden in God. And that hiddenness of God blocks, as I said, um, uh, a radical uh, theological conceptualizations, such as either double predestination, or universal salvation. It simply blocks it. You can't affirm either of them uh, because you're going beyond the limits and, and um, uh, that the hidden God forbids you from um, uh, drawing inferences like this. Yeah, I think I, I actually am at the point where I would say both assertions of universal salvation and assertions of double predestination are actually blasphemous because they are claiming to know what has not been given us to know. And therefore, they are violating that reverent majesty of God that we are not invited into. Uh, but I think the problem that immediately arises then, if you reject both of those, then we seem to be back at the um, the... Erasmian position that Luther hated so much, which is that, well, because we just can't know if we're saved, let's try our best to be good people. And uh, I think Luther's actually, uh, if, if there's anything uh, programmatizable here, Luther's response to the actual life of the church is also not that, but rather the um, duty and obligation, but let's say also freedom and joy of the apostolic ministry to constantly proclaim God revealed in Christ and the outpouring of the spirit and to continually try to draw people to that. And um, so that the Holy Spirit may make use of that ministry in order to draw people to himself. But all, all speculations, both of damnation uh, and of uh, selective damnation and universal salvation and inculcating um, radical uncertainty in people as a way of keeping them in line. I think all three of those options are blocked by what Luther is doing in this treatise. I agree with everything you're saying, except that this notion that we are to fear and adore God and his majesty 
is for Luther a necessary check against cheap grace. It's mm, it's a right. constant reminder that we are to fear love and trust in God above all things. And I Ruo Kanan brings this out, I think, very nicely, that the Deus Obscunditus serves to warrant the fear of God, so that even in the relationship of Christ and Spirit and grace and the Father's favor that we have been taken into by the revealed God, there remains this aura of mystery, this penumbra of things we do not know and cannot know, right? That that necessarily serves us, serves us properly for our salvation to instill in us the proper fear of God. Then maybe the way to distinguish it is that anxiety about your own personal salvation is still ultimately selfish. And Luther says, you know, people who object to uh, God's selective salvation object not because they have some radical sense of justice for the whole fallen human race, but because they're worried about their own skins. Mm-hmm. And and so anxiety about your, your salvation is um, narcissistic. That is a different thing from fear of God because God is God and God is good and God has given himself in grace that cannot be gamed or manipulated or hacked because God remains God. Um, and I think maybe helping helping people to make that distinction between self-centered anxiety and reverent fear of God is um, a, an important corrective. And I think maybe in our, our eagerness to eliminate anxiety about salvation, we have um, thrown out as well proper fear of God. Yeah. And that brings us, Sarah, back to the question, is God evil? And uh, that's how Luther actually concludes the treatise with his discussion of the three lights of nature, grace, and glory. And I think this is really important because a lot of scholarship has followed Kant, who wrote a treatise called On the Miscarriage of All Philosophical Theodicies, and uh, just pointed out that every attempt of human beings to justify God fails for various reasons we don't need to go into. And this theme of Kant has been echoed for 200 years, even uh, among excellent scholars of um, like Andre Vestrucci and, um, and um, um, uh, Ru- Ruo um that Luther does not in, uh, execute any theodicy in this treatise. That contradicts the plain text. At the end of the treatise on the bondage of the will, the apocalyptic uh, thematic returns full force when Jesus, when 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 Luther distinguishes between these three lights of nature, grace, and glory. And here, you know, I just I'll just cut to the chase here when he talks about the eschatological denouement, the light of glory. Um, what he says is something like this. Um, God is righteous, and in the resurrection of the dead, he will demonstrate his righteousness. But that's for then. This is now. In the meantime, we can we simply have to believe in the righteousness of God. But surely, when uh, the dead are raised by God in that final act of revelation— we will see his righteousness and that he has always been righteous. Now, that's 
that's a justification of God. Luther is justifying God, but he's putting it out of the realm of philosophy and the free will defense that Erasmus has assumed, and he's taking it in the apocalyptic sense. We know that the apocalyptic um, of genre of the Bible originated in the problem of theodicy. Can these bones live? O oh Lord, how long, how long, etc. Habakkuk, the book of prophet Habakkuk and so forth, and, and the saints crying out uh, in the book of Revelation. How long, O oh Lord, how long? So the question of where is the righteousness of God? When will we see it? When will we see God vindicate his own name and majesty and glory? And Luther's answer is he will in the light of glory. And that is so that what I call the theodicy of faith, as opposed to some kind of philosophical theodicy like Erasmus's um, free will defense of God's justice. Hmm. Yeah, I like that because that's also a good uh, test case for theology and preaching is, does this need uh, an eschatological answer to be to work fully? And the answer should be yes. <laughs> if we believe in in uh, the, the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead and uh, the right and just judgment on the last day and all those kind of things. So, right. So this means that... Um, you know, understandably, people want answers right now for their deep griefs and the horrors that they see. And, um, you know, uh, partial answers can sometimes be provided. But a lot of the time, the answer is we don't know. We can't see. We hope and trust in an end where in the light of glory, but even in the light of grace, not yet. But in the light of glory, God will show himself to be righteous and good. Right, and I would like to mention another scholarly resource on that question. It's a German book for those who can read German by Thomas Reinhuber, Kempfen der Glaube, Studien zu Luthers Bekenntnis am Ende der Servo von der Servo Arbitrio, um, which is translated in battled, Battling Faith, Studies to Luther's Confession at the End of the Treatise, on captive choice. Um, I think this is a very important book because it uh, it does, I think, back up the claim I was making that Luther does have a theodicy. It's not a philosophical theodicy. It's certainly not Erasmus's, but it is a theological theodicy. And another, uh, I would like to mention one other uh, scholarly, two other scholarly uh, sources for people. The best historical book on this whole set of problems is by Robert Kolb, titled Bound Choice, Election, and Wittenberg Theological Method, From Martin Luther to the Formula of Concord. This is just comprehensive. It's excellent, very good book, uh, and it goes through the immediate aftermath of, um, of the publication of Luther's treatise and how it created a great deal of chaotic a discussion in the aftermath of the uh, of Luther's death. There's a delicious story about the Calvinist reformer Theodor Beza debating, I think, with George Major in the 1550s on free will. And after they went back and forth, Beza the Calvinist picks up Luther's De Servo Arbitrio and waves it, wags it, wags it at George Major. 
Um, so anyway, if you're interested about the uh, the history of the fallout of the treatise, that Kolb's book is very good. And one Wait, last... I don't understand. Does that mean Beza won the debate over Major? Beza was saying, look, I'm a better Lutheran than you are, George Major. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> because even <laughs> though right. I'm a Calvinist, I'm a better Lutheran than you. And uh, maybe there's a, some, the, some truth in that. One last reference. Robert Jensen published an article in Modern Theology in 1994 titled An Ontology of Freedom in De Servo Arbitrio of Luther. What's insightful about this, again, is that um, he understands uh, Luther's primary talk about human will as voluntas, as willingness. So he can argue the real freedom of will is the freedom of beloved children of God who do the Father's will willingly. That goes, of course, back to Augustine, who contrasted willingness with servile will, grudgingly doing another's will under coercion. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, and just then to, to finally wrap this up, one thing that really struck me this time uh, in the final section of the treatise, um, once Luther has now stripped away all of your defenses and your claims against God and your pretensions of your freedom and power and all that, um, then he actually can come back to the good news actually being good news. And I just want to read two particular quotes here. Luther says, Kindness and sweetness are everywhere attributed to the Spirit. So actually, it's a great thing to have all of your pretensions of salvation being in your own hands and having your own free will to do the right thing in your own eyes, because then you are actually free to uh, have, you've lost everything. So now the kindness and the sweetness of the Spirit can come. And then a little bit later, Luther writes, The ungodly does not come, even when he hears the word which is a striking thing to say. The word by itself doesn't do it, but the, you need God to activate the word. And then Luther continues, unless the father draws and teaches him inwardly, which he does by pouring out the spirit. For then Christ is set forth by the light of the spirit so that a man is wrapped away to Christ with the sweetest rapture and rather yields passively to God. So a Lutheran doctrine of the rapture is when the Holy Spirit finally shows you how sweet and kind and beautiful the salvation offered in Christ is, and then you are able to receive it as good news and so be reconciled to your heavenly Father. That actually is good news. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a great way to end, end this uh, podcast with the ecstasy of the Spirit. Uh, rejoicing in the grace and goodwill of the Heavenly Father, being found by the Holy Spirit in the company of his own beloved Son. Wonderful. Good news. Amen and Alleluia. And with that, next time on the show, are we going upward or downward? We are going to be discussing Philip Melanchthon's Loci Commutes. listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.